The Athletic. Hello everybody and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the multi-award winning Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm your host Danny Kelly and joining me today are The Athletic Exchange more and Jack Pitt-Book and on today's episode we'll discuss the return of the prodigal son, that last minute winner, hooray, um, and the trials and tribulations of time wasting. Um, but let's start with the, the Saturday three o'clock kickoff, how I love rolling those words around my mouth, um, Spurs against Brighton. James, why don't we start with you returning to the pod with a victory under your belt. What did you make of the game overall? It wasn't a great performance from Spurs, was it? I don't think anyone would uh, would contest that. I, and also, I don't think it was really the game I expected it to be either. I don't know why. I didn't expect Brighton to be quite... So, I mean, look, it wasn't quite Brentford or Everton levels in terms of the, the shit housing or the physicality, but there was a lot more of it than I thought there would be. I don't know. I just had visions of Brighton being this kind of, you know, pure footballing side who were incredibly inventive and uh, would just be trying to do everything the right way. And I, for whatever reason, that's been my vision of Brighton. But clearly, uh, th- that was slightly naive and misguided. I mean, it, it, I hear what you're saying. It was the game I predicted on the podcast. It was total basketball, end-to-end and end. But, yeah, but the physicality thing, this is because... Spurs have shown themselves to be a bit weedy, the two recent goalkeeping things, and they don't complain enough about referees. Of course, teams are going well, to yeah, do that, it. That is definitely the case. I mean, it's interesting. You're, you're right. It was kind of end-to-end, but it wasn't a game where there were loads of good chances. Like, for a, for a game where... And look, we, we saw it decided right at the end where with a chance that kind of felt like the kind of chance you expect to see in an end-to-end game. But there weren't, like, a lot of high XG chances... Uh, throughout the game, I think I, I, you know. I know some people don't care about XG, and I'm going to get this slightly wrong. But I think Spurs was sort of one point seven five to Brighton's one point two five or whatever. So that does probably just about translate as a two one win, I guess. But it, it wasn't. It was an open game, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it was necessarily a hugely high quality game in terms of like good moves that resulted in good opportunities. I mean, even you know, I think most people think Brighton were perhaps a little bit unlucky to lose the game, and that may well be the case. But how many good chances do they have? You know, he scored a penalty. They didn't really have anything apart from apart from the Ansu Fati one where he should have won the game. Before then, there wasn't really an awful lot, even though they were the better team for chunks of the game. Yeah, Gilmore, Gilmore dominated the game, didn't he, uh, for chunks in the first half without ever being translated into into chances. Yeah, yeah. He sort of ran the, I mean, Gilmore, I thought, was really good. I mean, I went to that game thinking, yeah, it was great. Mitoma's back, I'm going to be looking forward to watching Mitoma. And he was good, Mitoma. But Gilmore was brilliant. And that, that made me think if Spurs are actually looking for another, you know, they're looking for a midfielder who came through at Chelsea, who, you know, would be good for the homegrown quota. Maybe he'd be a better bet. Uh, he'd probably actually be more expensive than, uh, than Gallagher. Well, the way, the the way Brighton value their players, yeah, he would yeah, be. Yeah, yeah that, that's absolutely fair. Oh, look, well, Jack, I was going to ask, there comes this time, about the time when the, when the sort of um, the spring flowers are just starting to poke their heads out of the ground, that I do um, become a football man and say that there, there comes a time in, a, in any run in a season where the performances are less important than the results. And this was an incredibly important result. Spurs had to get those three points and did. Yeah, I definitely think this, it was kind of in keeping with, to be honest, quite a lot of Spurs games over the last few months where 
they they ground out a win without really fully clicking or without really playing the kind of football that you might have expected them to play. I mean, look, Postacoglu hammered them afterwards for their first half performance in a way that I thought was, I mean, clearly he was trying to get a message across there about how unhappy he was with how Spurs had started the game. I thought Spurs took them, you know, most of the first half to come to terms with Brighton's sort of clever man-to-man marking system. You know, Brighton had Van Hacker, the centre-back, chasing James Madison all over the pitch, which meant that, you know, there were times where Van Hacker was the most um, most advanced Brighton player. And at the same time, they had Danny Welbeck chasing Benton Kerr anywhere he went, with great success, I think, in both cases. And Benton Kerr didn't get a foothold into the games. Madison didn't get into the game for a while. And Spurs just, I mean, they did kind of improve a little bit just before the break. I thought the break actually came at quite a bad time for Tottenham because they were starting to create things. But yeah, it was another game when it, it wasn't quite as bad as the the defeat at Brighton on the 28th of December, but it was certainly a game where Brighton looked to come into the match with a bit more, you know, with a cleverer plan and a, and a bit more intensity than Tottenham. And it did take Tottenham quite a while to really grow into it. I mean, all these things are, you know, we're forensically recreating the reality of the game where, you know, Brighton's plan to negate Benton Kerr and Madison worked, which actually put Gilmore's performance into an even brighter light, didn't it? Because there was someone in midfield who was getting the ball, making the turn and, and moving it on. They got a penalty and I, I, I must admit, you know, it was a penalty and all that, but I bit my lip then because I thought if Bright- Brighton are so good in possession normally that they, they might hold the ball here for a long, long time. I'm thinking right and say, did Spurs eventually turn it around and have the majority of possession, or was it slightly in Brighton's favour? Yeah, 51 52%, I think, Spurs in the end. I did actually wonder, I mean, I, I, watching the game, it was quite frustrating seeing how congested it was in, in midfield. And, you know, clearly Spurs put the full-backs in there, played with three central midfielders. You know, as you've mentioned, Brighton sent two players in to follow Benton Kerr and Madison, so they were in there as well. And it wasn't always great to watch and you could tell it was causing Spurs some problems, but I do actually wonder whether it was causing Brighton just as many or if not more problems maybe in the end. Yeah, they they, they didn't flow the way they can do either. And very quickly, an aside about that, um, Spurs uh, de- designated um, at, at corners to Brighton, which there weren't many of, Jack, but they designated the physical powerhouse of Madison to protect the goalkeeper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it, it did work. Spurs didn't concede from a corner. Um, I can see why. I can see why Madison was given the job. He's quite kind of. He doesn't mind standing up for himself, Madison. You know, he can be quite. And he's obviously not not the biggest, but he's still quite a physical player. He doesn't. You know, for, for a creative player, he doesn't. He's never kind of shirked a challenge. I guess that's the. You know, if you've grown up playing for Coventry City in what League One and the Championship then obviously you're going to get used to you know having to hold your own physically um but yeah in in that sense it 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 did work and but then it is interesting that Tottenham have had to had to come up with a, a plan b for this because they know that you know the kind of word is out clearly in the premier league that it's worth sticking somebody on vicario and as we've had a couple of uh, pods where we've had to question vicario it's worth saying, you know, he, he does get full value for his saves, doesn't he? Let's not kid ourselves. Um, he The whole of his large body is employed uh, to make saves that perhaps occasionally, um, maybe uh, maybe I'm not a goalkeeping coach, 
Um, you you think some other goalkeepers might have made less drama out of that, but he he, he made a couple of really good saves yesterday. And football men will say, oh, they were at saveable height. Sod that. They've got to be stopped, haven't they? And he and he did very well, I thought. I think it's ridiculous blaming a goalkeeper for the you know the kind of save for the cameras criticism. You know, like his job is his job is to keep the ball out of the net. If he and unless you think that his the the sort of save for the camera thing is making it less likely that he's gonna he's gonna successfully save the shot. What's the problem? Oh no, oh, no, no, no I'm not really got my problem. I didn't say save for the cameras. You've extrapolated that, haven't no, you? No, come on. You that I thought I heard that in the the kind of tone of what you were saying. Well, I'm perfectly capable of expressing exactly what I think, Jack. If I want to, I have the full panoply of the English language. So so to do, um, I'm saying that he sometimes. Well, I, Sometimes he dives when I think he could just catch the ball, you know. Um, but if that stays for the camera, then so be it. There you are. I bow there to you, sir. Um, because I just wanted, to, I just wanted to make the point as well, though, that he played very well. Because um, uh, after a couple of games when we 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 thought he, you know, he was under the pump a little bit, that it was very, very good indeed. The second half, I want to talk about the second half in a way because one of the differences between the teams in the top six, seven, eight, and the rest in a very competitive Premier League this year is, of course, the five substitutes rule. It continues to allow teams with good squads to change the game in their favour through massive personnel changes. You know, half the outfielders can be changed. That is monstrous. Um, Spurs haven't had that luxury for about three months now, a combination of suspensions, injuries and international tournaments. James, I thought not just the introduction of Son, but the fact that they had a proper bench meant that it was much more hope that they were going to not just get back into the game in the second half, but also go on to win it. Yes, that is true. And it certainly was encouraging to see those names, you know, Son, Basuma, who else was it? Been Johnson, Hoiberg, whoever on the bench, senior players of, you know, whatever you might think, decent Premier League pedigree. But I would actually argue that the free the, the treble substitution that Postecoglou was wanted to make before Sar scored and those three players that came on were already who was this so this is Son Johnson and Hoiberg I think is that right Jack Son Johnson and Bissouma Son, Son Johnson and Bissouma sorry yes but it, it felt like that came, you know obviously Spurs had scored immediately before that that treble substitution was made and it felt like that was the first time that Spurs had really kind of got their heads around this this kind of marking man-to-man marking job that Brighton were doing. We should say the Athletics' Liam Farmer's written a really good analytical piece about this specific thing, this marking thing that Brighton were doing and how Spurs worked their way around it. But it felt to me like Spurs had found a solution and Kulisevsky had played this amazing ball through to Saar, who you know tries to square it to Richarlison and maybe gets a little bit fortunate the ball comes back to him and then he can tuck it in from quite a tight angle. And then there's you know like a sense that they found out how to do it and Saar needs to run beyond and this is how we're going to be able to win the game now. And then suddenly you make this treble substitution. Kulisevsky was obviously really annoyed to be coming off. And I know, you know, we always say you want your players to be annoyed to become to come off, fair enough. But I think in this particular instance, I think he probably felt, I've, I've got my head around it now. I've done the thing that's going to win us this game and now you're taking me off. And that, like, I suppose it kind of built up a bit of a head of steam over that, say, second half hour of the game. And that just completely fell flat, I think, for the next half hour. And it took them another half hour to kind of... Yeah, they didn't have a shot at goal between the equaliser and the winner, I think. Or certainly didn't have more than one. There was like a, a Hoiberg kind of swinger from the edge of the box as well, wasn't there? And he put one yeah, out of the bad. bar. 
Um, okay, we're, we're counting that. Okay, fair uh, enough. But, yeah, but like a, you know, like a shot on target or anything that's like tested or worried the goalkeeper. But it did seem a bit unfortunate that he stuck to his guns, made that substitution of a treble substitution, and then it, it really kind of felt like it took quite a big chunk out of that game in terms of Spurs finding a way through. And we saw in the Brentford game, there's a team capable of kind of really putting a team to the sword in quite a short period of time. Um, although obviously in that game, they then kind of removed the sword again and gave it to Brentford and whatever. But <laughs> Gave them a bad <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, help them up. So yeah, I do think that that's actually the flip side to this like age of five substitutions and you know the big squads having, the, big, the bigger clubs having the bigger squads that sometimes you roll the dice and it doesn't quite work as well as you expect it to. Although you look clearly one of the three players that came on scored the winning goal in the 96 minutes. So it can't have been... From an assist by it another. It can't have been yeah. that bad. Yeah, it's weird. I, I actually remember, I think this is quite a common a common thought for people who are at, at the game is that from Spurs were almost as bad. Is, it, is that unfair? Almost as bad from 60 to 90 minutes as they were for the first 30. I think the, the biggest thing they really lost is Kulisewski's ability to hold on to the ball and carry the ball forward. I know that Johnson had that one chance where he ran through on goal and shot quite weakly straight at the keeper but not having Kuliseski on the pitch gave Tottenham kind of seemed, seemed to remove Tottenham's outlet a bit I think for, for, for ball progression and I know that Benton Kerr started the game badly but I did think that Benton Kerr was growing into it a bit uh, in the second half when he came off and then, then you're bringing on someone who's not you know Bissouma who's not played for Tottenham for for weeks and weeks um, and yeah I mean obviously the, you know it was kind of validated at the end because of that winning goal in the 96th minute but up until then we were um, sat, sat next to Dan Kilpatrick from the Evening Standard. We were talking about how the triple change had basically killed Tottenham. It had killed Tottenham's chances because they had, you know, they did have the momentum before that point, and then they kind of lost it. You know, obviously it was Kulisewski who played that brilliant pass through to Saar, which I think is a goal we should. I mean, what I loved about that goal is it's kind of a goal that only Saar would score. Like Saar is Tottenham's best. I think Tottenham's best midfielder at making that kind of dynamic off the ball run breaking through the opposition defensive line like I don't think anyone nobody else who they have can really really does that in quite the same yeah, way the, the others tend to want to do it with the ball at their feet he does it without the ball I think that's really important isn't it Sar's got an amazing I mean we saw this a bit when he scored against Man United at the start of the season he does have an amazing kind of natural natural instinct for making that late run to the box that kind of um slightly I guess kind of skill that most people associate with Lampard but obviously and, and you know married to the fact that Saar's also very fast and able to to cover ground quickly um so yeah I thought that was a brilliant bit of play and I'm pleased that you know the ball took that fairly lucky deflection off dunk off the post and then back to Saar so that Saar could put it in. Jack I mean we, we just mentioned there the fact that the winner was scored by a substitute from a pass by a substitute um, you've actually done a piece about the importance of the of the return of Spurs' bench, which was, you know, four weeks ago, it was denuded um, and we were seeing um, n- not players we'd never heard of, but players who've got little or no first-team experience. How important is it that they, get, that they have got a whole chunk of international footballers now waiting to come onto the pitch? Yeah, I mean, look, Brian Hill and Dane Scarlett weren't on the bench yesterday they're both good players in their own right Hill and Scarlett and so for them to not be in the match day squad does show that Spurs now have options you know Spurs had tons of options on the bench yesterday and I thought the, the goal was a brilliant goal the way that all from all the way back from Madison in the in Spurs own half starting the move 
through Richarlison back to Madison, I think then forward to Richarlison to Son. And then Son kind of sprint. I know, you know, he's got fairly fresh legs because he's only been on the pitch for half an hour, but still, you know, he played, what, two games and went to extra time in Qatar? I imagine he's probably mentally more wiped than he is physically after that experience. And then, you know, running at full pelt in that inside left channel and then off balance with his slightly weaker foot, kind of whipping the ball around so that it bends in such a way that it it kind of curves away from Estupanan forward into exactly into the path of Johnson so that Estupanan can't cut it out and Johnson just has to put it into an empty net. I know that Johnson scored a fairly similar but probably easier finish against Brentford because you know when it was Werner who crossed from the left because the pace of the ball was different. But um yeah, that was it was a it was a fantastic bit of football. And, kind, you know, despite everything that me and James have just said, a bit of football that kind of validated that triple change that we were everybody been criticising for the previous 30 minutes. That That is the trademark Ange Ball goal, that, isn't it, I think? that kind of And actually, it's another thing that our athletic colleague Liam Thomas has written about this season, uh, the number of cutbacks Spurs have scored. But, yeah, you think how many times we've seen Son or Werner or Poro, I think, a couple of times. Like, get get into that kind of position really high up and then drag a ball right across a six-yard box. It's been quite, it feels like it's happened quite a bit. But also, you know, absolutely, everything you say is correct, but just to keep going, it required... I mean, Madison had to make a pass standing still. That's fine. That's what he's good at. But Richarlison was still running. Son was still running. Brennan Johnson had to get in front of his of his man to score it. And that's 96 minutes into a pretty intense Premier League game. Admittedly, two of them had been on a pitch the whole time, but it's not something you always see. To, Spurs don't settle for the draw anymore. Now, that's very difficult on my nerves after half a century of settling for draws in games. Um, but I was delighted because, you know, the criticism of not managing the game uh, in previous weeks is balanced out by, OK, if the game is still slightly chaotic, you've got a chance of getting a goal. And with the quality players back, you've got a good chance. Although, Jack, I don't don't think Brennan Johnson shared your view that he all he had to do was put it into the net. He spoke in great detail afterwards about the trajectory and the spin on the ball, didn't he, as it came to him? It, it, did, it did bobble up as he hit it. And I, if he, he actually hits it really quite high into the yeah. net, given where it was. And so I, I remember, like, you know, so where we are in the press box is... That goal is far away from from where we were, but you have you know, quite a good view. I remember in that kind of I'm sure everybody, particularly where James is sat, will have the same thing. When he hit it, because the ball goes straight up in the air, basically off Johnson's foot for a split second, you're thinking, "Oh my god, it's going to hit the bar." Yeah, no, no, it was a good finish because by hitting it high, it takes the goalkeeper out of the equation, who's yeah. inevitably going down. But it also brings the sky into the equation, doesn't it? That's the yeah. problem with it. But The thing about, and it's interesting, given that Johnson obviously scored that similar goal against Brentford, is that Postacoglu did say afterwards that they've been working with Johnson on, on exactly what what you just you guys just talked about, which was that arriving at the far post to get on the end of, of the low cross. And clearly it's, it's something which is integral to how Tottenham want to play. In that sense, it kind of reminds me a little bit of I know they're obviously very different players, but when when Guardiola came to City in 2016, one of his big things was was encouraging Sterling to make those kind of runs to score those kind of goals because obviously City played in such a way that they'd often have I don't know it would have been at that point Leroy Sane again running down the left then pulling that low that kind of low cross to the far post where Sterling could put it in, and uh, you know you can obviously see the similarities between the kind of goals that that Tottenham now score. And while I think that Johnson you know, clearly confidence in front of goal is something which he he's going to 
have to develop more. The fact that he's managed to nail this particular goal twice recently puts him in good position. If you're factoring in that run and the movement, I don't think any of the other players who play sort of out wide regularly or irregularly, if you include people like Hill. I mean, I'm sure Son has scored goals like that on the other side, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. Kulazewski isn't going to attack the far post like that. And from what I've seen in Werner, he isn't going to attack the far post like that. Brian Hill isn't going to, you know. It's all very well and good to say it, it's just a tapping, but you actually have to make the run, not be picked up, and arrive arrive at the ball at the right time. Exactly. I, I was just about to say, James, you're hitting the nail on the head here because in real time, you know, obviously things are happening at a very high speed, but you're watching the game, and if you love the game, you, you know, I, I try and watch it in, a, in an analytical way as well as an emotional way. There was a moment when I thought, my God, Johnson is not... Rashardless was going full pelt, Son was going full pelt, and Johnson held himself back slightly. If you watch it carefully, he doesn't make that run to the post until the very last minute. He's, he's not sauntering, but he's running at a normal pace into the penalty area, and then he accelerates. Um, he, it's it's clear that he's been taught that, that the, you don't have to fight with the fullback. You can take the, the marker out of the game by arriving later. Well, he's made that he's made that a short race. He's not made it a 50-yard race from halfway line against the fullback. He's made it, a, like you said, like a sort of 12-yard race to this, in, from the edge of the box to the six-yard box, isn't he, basically? Last thing in this before we go to the break, we spoke about Brennan Johnson's form and he scored the winner. I think it's okay where we're celebrating a late win and a delightful win and a very necessary win, to ask the question, what we need to talk about Rodrigo Benton Kerr. Was he, Jack, harried out of the match by close marking, in which case the game is 10 against 10 and Spurs can take advantage of that? Or is the fella still struggling to get anywhere near the kind of form that we know he can attain? Yeah, I don't think he's at his best at the moment. Um, I thought he was really poor for most of the first half, probably all the first half. Partly responsible for the penalty too, wasn't he? The, yeah, yeah. He had the. I think he. I think it was Gross who nicked the ball off him just before the penalty. There was another one where Welbeck, who did a, as I said, a very tight man marking job on him, where Welbeck uh, nicked, nicked the ball off him and caused Tottenham problems. I think it's entirely understandable that he would not be at his best at the moment because he you know, he's missed so much football. You know, he had he's had a series of injuries. Um, it's not really been. He's not really played consistently and at a high level since what the I can't remember off the top of my head when he did his ACL last season, but it was uh, quite a while ago now. So look, and look, he's obviously he he clearly is a great player, and I'm sure there's no reason to believe that he won't get back to that level again. But I think everybody needs to have a bit of understanding that right you know it's probably going to take him a while to be the the sort of Benteke that we remember from last season yeah it, it, it leads Poster Coglu what I suppose manager would call it a nice problem they've got a lot of fit midfielders now um, but overall uh, a, a fantastically important win um, achieved by the you know that most beautiful of things the slightly undeserved late winner obviously it's better if you can do that away from home that is the absolute ultimate for any football fan but I enjoyed the uh, the crowd's reaction too, of course, um, and the celebration police will no doubt be out in force. But uh, you know the, the way the stadium is now aligned and the lighting and all the rest of it, the the minutes immediately after the game look like great, great fun. And uh, even you, James, um, who doesn't always have your fun hat on, must have enjoyed the the moment when the final whistle went and everyone was going mad. 
Yeah, I always enjoy that. Yeah, the final the final whistle is the definitive moment. There's no well, I was going to say there's no VAR after the final whistle, but there obviously was in that Brighton game two years ago, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's great at the end of a game now, and when you can win, that was the third time this season they've won a game in added time. Yeah, I I actually maybe that was the most fun one. I think it felt like a big game, like you say, and uh, yeah, undeserved makes it even funnier. Fantastically important result, and. Uh, We'll, we'll discuss it further in the second half in relation to the revival of Manchester United and the view of Manchester United's ex-manager about Spurs in general. All that's coming up in the second half of today's View of the Lane where you'll listen to me, Danny Kelly, Jack Pitbrook and James Moore. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back, everybody, to the view from the lane. Uh, Spurs are fourth after that victory over Brighton, a point ahead of Aston Villa, and six points ahead of Manchester United, who have won three games on the trot. Did any of you, I suppose you all have now, see the clip of Sir Alex Ferguson doing the rounds on social media? Um, what did you make of his response to the question of Spurs, will, will Spurs win the league before Manchester United, in which he almost um, snotted his champagne out his nose with derision? Um, his exact words, along with the laughing, were no chance. More more interestingly, I thought, was Gary Neville's um, comments after the game that where Manchester United won at Aston Villa, where he said he thought the Spurs fans would be very upset by this result because it means that United are hunting Spurs down. I think I'm right in saying, Jack, that Gary uh, is wrong here, that most Spurs fans would have wanted, firstly, a draw, so they both lose points. Secondly, a United win because it allowed Spurs to stay ahead of Aston Villa. And the United, you know, the Aston Villa win was the thing that we didn't want. Is that about right? Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think you're, I think you're probably right. I think people are not... People aren't... It's not clear whether United sort of turnaround is for real or not. So it's difficult to assess, like, to what extent United rather than Villa are Tottenham's rivals for fourth. Who do you think is Tottenham's rivals for fourth, James? Well, I mean, I, I would... At this point, you probably would still say both of them, which, as you say... Would probably have made the draw the best result. Manchester United were not brilliant in that game yesterday. I know we've talked at length about Spurs not being great against Brighton, but Spurs, uh, Manchester United weren't especially convincing against Aston Villa. They were only convincing in patches against Wolves. I didn't see their game against West Ham, but they only won that game 3-0, which is evidently not very good. And they weren't especially convincing against Spurs the game before that. And the Premier League game before that, they lost to Nottingham Forest. So, uh, you know, they've won three games in a row and they've kept themselves in touching distance. If you can call six points at this stage of the season touching distance, I suppose you could. I mean, I think that's, you know, just with the eyes, I haven't done the uh, athletic deep dive here. The introduction of Maynou has had two consequences. They've got more legs than they've had in midfield for two or three years. And it's also seems to have encouraged the other younger players that they are going to have to take this team off the old lags who've um, held it back for the last three or four years and move it forward. Um, the issue with Maynou, who looks like a fantastic player, by the way, 
is that he's 18 and will he keep this up till the end of the season? That That is true. He, he is brilliant, by the way. The difference between Spurs and Manchester United is this. If Spurs had lost 2-1 to Brighton on Saturday, we would have come on this podcast and we would have said, they lost the game, we didn't play well, these are the problems, this is what they need to fix, the trajectory is still upwards, this is the plan, this is the vision, these are the good young players, this is how it's all going to work, it's all going to be fine. This is annoying, but it's going to be fine. With Manchester United, they easily could have lost that game 2-1 yesterday and it would just be a crisis again and it would be, you know, player X, player Y, Casemiro's passed it, Varane's passed it, we're reliant on McTominay, is Hoyland any good... Uh, Anthony's a waste of money at 100 million quid everything else uh, and like it's, it's just chaos again uh, there's no you know it's like, like we talked earlier in the season about the sense of a bigger picture the sense of a journey the sense of a plan that's being adhered to and Manchester United don't have that and that may change from the summer when they get a proper manager and spend a bit more money on players again I, look, I mean Manchester United they're in good form so you would kind of half worry about them but I, they'll lose they'll lose a game to someone ridiculous in the next few weeks and then it'll be absolute nonsense again for another month um just but just just take me through with all respect to aston villa take me through the prospects for spurs and Manchester united uh, jack as we head towards the finishing line who do you think is in better shape uh i think tottenham are probably in better shape just because they have generally been playing better over the course of the season you know there's more there's more support for the manager both from, I mean, it's very clear that Postacoglu is going to be the manager next season, I think. Whereas with Ten Hag, you know, clearly his position is under review, to put it mildly, given the new ownership coming in. I think that, and that always makes a big difference. I think, you know, players pick up on that, on that sort of thing very fast. I think Tottenham have got, I actually think Tottenham have probably got a better squad. Less money's been spent on it, but they've got more good. I think Tottenham have got more good players at a good age. United are a little bit caught between, you know, like Casemiro and Eriksen were both, I think were both great players five years ago, or even three years ago. But um, in the middle of the pitch, I think Spurs are probably a bit more sort of current in terms of what they've got. So I think Spurs Spurs are in a more stable position. That said, United have got the firepower where they could just put a run together and, you know, they could take a lot of points from from their remaining games. But I think you'd probably rather be in Tottenham's shoes than Man United's. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you to to Sir Alex for um, being so dismissive of Spurs. But let's be fair, that's been his habit for 45 years. Nothing has changed there. Um, We haven't recorded a pod, uh, people, since uh, the news about blue cards being trailed. Um, now, that we normally leave this to the more general and brilliant podcast that The Athletic makes, but because Ange Postacoglu um, made uh, some very strong comments about it, I want to get your views as well. Um, he said that uh, the team whose player was put into the sin bin with a blue card um, for 10 minutes would just spend the whole time running the clock down. So if you get five of those in a game, um, you know, you're going to end up with most of the game spent tr- trying to manage the time when you're down to 10 men. This is one of those ideas that I think is preposterous. I think it's as preposterous as the Super League in its own way for the fan experience. And fans, as well as players and managers, both Klopp and Foster Coglu, have put their boot in already. They need to back this down. It is nonsense. The referees already have a sanction for tactical fouling and dissent. It's called a yellow card. Use it or shut up. I think it's nuts, and who asked IFAB to do it? Uh, it is one of our, it is definitely one of those things that like they've done with TV in mind because you can imagine a big game, you know, a big player in a big game has been sent into the sin bin. You know, I'm guessing this is going to be like some 
little bench next to the VAR screen where, you know, whichever high-profile player will be set. Oh, no, he'll be handcuffed to the fourth official. I guarantee you, for TV purposes, he'll but, um, be handcuffed to the fourth official. Just imagine the constant cuts away to this guy, like, l- looking at the watch, like, there's a countdown on the screen. It's all, like, sponsored by whoever. You know, it, it's just a load of shite. I hate it. And you're right, Danny, they, they, have, they have yellow cards. And from the start of the season, we were we were told that the two things that would be clamped down on were dissent and uh, cynical Tats- fouls, yeah, tactical ta- fouls. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and sure enough, it happened for about three weeks, and they sort of forgot about it. It's it that there's an obvious solution; it already exists. If you book a player for a tactical foul in the first half of a game, he isn't going to do it again. Or if he does, he's going to be sent off, and he knows that. There's no, there should be no grey area. Yeah. You've got a, you've got a sport where hamstring injuries are one of the most common in-game problems, and you're going to ask people to sit on the sideline in February for ten minutes. Um, and then come back into the game. It's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. Um, so to finish off then, um, and to waste a bit of time, uh, James, this is adjacent really, you know, there are, ga- there are things other than the beauty of the game and, you know, Madison to Richarlison to, to Son to Johnson, last minute, roof the net rather than the, the bottom of the net just to give us a bit of drama. That's the beauty of the game, certainly for the fans of Spurs rather than Brighton. But there are other things that, uh, you know, should normally be left. The authorities should deal with it. But, of course, they don't. You've got a, James, uh, if I had a trumpet now, I'd play it. A peal of trumpets. James, you've got a theory about time wasting. Yeah. So as I got the train home from the game on Saturday night, I I, I closed my eyes and I could see like an image of Jason Steele just stood there holding the ball. Like a, you know, like a sort of... uh, with magic eye kind of picture like I could see that in my sort of vision uh, and that was obviously because I'd spent so much of the previous hour and a half watching this guy just stood there like standing there uh, it was just it was just like properly just like etched into my mind's eye uh, and it really did amaze me how in that game he spent so much time just standing there holding the ball and it was obviously like a tactical thing and so often when I watch a game uh, you know, when I've been to Spurs and I've watched a team come and waste time, it's really felt like Spurs have got, you know, the crowd have got agitated and the team have got agitated. And it's all, it always works against the team, the, who, the home team, who are then, you know, who get wound up and then make rash challenges and, like, uh, rush into trying to play the ball forward and whatever else. Uh, I could, cause there are countless games where Spurs have played a home to Wolves or Stoke or Hull or whoever, and they've lost 1-0 and the other team have been wasting time and it's been absolute nonsense. But this team, and specifically I think the way they approach the game, and actually we mentioned it a bit earlier, the fact that it's always live, uh, they don't really change the way they play. The game management isn't a thing, game state isn't a thing. It's always more or less playing the same way. I think that really helps them... I kind of put that to one side and not get too wound up by like time being wasted. And I think that is the crux of the reason they've won those three games in stoppage time. Because even in the Liverpool game, there was a lot of time wasting. And you know, you know, you could argue that was kind of understandable in the circumstances for them. They were down to nine men for so much of the game, and they nearly got a point. So yeah, I just I, it just struck me that this Spurs team were actually very good at managing those situations. And sure enough, again on Saturday, they eventually did find a way through. Find a way through, and there were problems with the performance. But uh, there wasn't any 
there wasn't ever any sense that they had become frustrated by that. And there was some stuff in the Brentford game where they did get annoyed. Obviously, we talked about it last week, week before. But yeah, it, it just struck me that maybe they found a way of overcoming that. Yeah, and it's it, it, I think that's a really good point. It's very striking how, now you say that, James, it, I remember that in the Brentford game, what really pissed off Postacoglu was the way that Br- Brentford managed to drag them into the game that they wanted. Like the kind of scrappy... Um, you know, argumentative, everyone round the ref all the time, all that kind of mope stuff. Like that's that that's the last thing Boxcoglu wanted. He doesn't want his team. You know, he doesn't want Tottenham to be like Atletico Madrid. He wants his team to focus on playing their football on their terms, and that that can be a difficult thing to do when you're up against an opponent who wants to you know take you places you don't want to go. Um, so I'm sure I'm sure that you're right, and I'm sure you're also right in saying it's connected to. Postacoglu's view that you play the same way you you play the same way all the time regardless of the scoreboard regardless of the clock which again is a you know maybe an easy thing to say but quite a difficult thing to do in practice and I think that it does kind of connect back to I know it's kind of becoming a bit of a cliche now the whole like it's who we are mate it's the way we play mate sort of stuff but I think this is why and I really like James, I don't want to revisit the Chelsea argument again, but this this is why it's so important to establish an ethos first and foremost, so that your players have this this kind of playbook or this kind of methodology and also ideology to fall back on, whatever the circumstances, so that that, that way you can play your game rather than playing the circumstances, and that's what Spurs have succeeded in doing. James, I think after every game now, you should go on to the train and get in touch with your mind palace because that was really brilliant. Um, and I, I expect that kind of thinking post every home game. I don't expect you um, to be able to do it and comfort your own home. It's the train that's bringing this on. Um, listen, thank you very much indeed for all of that. We'll be back on Thursday. We'll take more of your questions then. And we'll be previewing uh, the upcoming game against Wolves. Just reminded the show is its own official home on X stroke Twitter at VFTL podcast, or you can email all of us at VFTL at theathletic.com. And for the best coverage anywhere, make sure that you sign up to The Athletic. Take advantage of our latest offer. It's just $1.99 a month for 12 months. Simply go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to subscribe. Thank you, James. Thank you, Jack. And a last thought from me. I got it wrong. An undeserved win with a last-minute winner is not the greatest feeling. The greatest feeling is an undeserved winner with a last-minute goal against a team who've been time-wasting. Thank you very much, Brighton. See you soon. The Athletic.